359, Chapter 40. Book Talk begins at 18 minutes and 22 seconds. Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 359, Confuzzled. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. And March Hair Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. I hope you are well. I will be very well next week when my children are back in school. To be completely honest, they will be very happy too. We took a little tour of the school and we met the teacher, at least the the fifth grade teacher. Toured the senior high school. That was very nice. It looks very much like my son's previous middle school. So, and so I'm hoping after all of this that next week will be a little closer to a normal that is recognizably normal. I know all of you with kids feel this way when we hit this point. It's been a long five, almost six months since the moving rotations began. And yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to settle into normal. Because we're living on kind of a country road now, the school bus stop will actually stop in front of the house. So that's going to be a new thing. (laughs) I wonder how many times my kids will manage to miss the bus, even though it will pick them up at the bottom of the driveway. Anyone want to put odds on that? I don't. Oh, I really don't. My confuzzlement this week is about compartmentalizing. You may have noticed that I keep busy. (laughs) A little, not very much. I keep busy, which is great, but also evidently challenging. And when you're an ooshiny kind of ADD-ish person like me, and you're really interested in everything and want to do everything, it's not even have all the things, it's do all the things. It, It makes it hard. It makes it hard to sleep and hang out with family and stuff like that. So my husband and I have been kind of strategizing and trying to figure out, well, what, what will allow me to maximize the time that I have to do the things that I can do that I want to do and not make myself feel guilty for not getting everything else done. It's horrible when you can't cross anything off on your to-do list because you haven't finished anything. Mostly due to the fact that everything that you're trying to do takes weeks and weeks and months and months and sometimes even a year. And so it's hard to cross it off of your list every day. And so we've been, we've been trying to figure stuff out. 
But it it is confusing because right now things are so busy that I haven't had time to sit down and really kind of just chill and think through stuff. So it's been a week of confuzzlement, but a good one. And at the end of today's episode, I will explain the best part of why this week is both confuzzled and also very exciting. And very exciting in a way that could be a lot of fun for you as well. But first, I have a new audio voicemail from longtime listener Jennifer. Hi, Heather. It's Jennifer. Um, I'm, I know alone on Ravelry, Twitter, and absolutely everywhere else on the web. And I just wanted to thank you personally for episode 59 of Bleak House and your special ending and a little addition from Animal House. I am of an age to have watched the movie and absolutely adore it and just wanted to share a little story with you as I um, from a couple of weeks ago when I was walking through the kitchen in my office. I work with a lot of younger programmers, some of them right out of school, some of them in their early 30s, and they were talking about the movie that revolutionized movies about college, and I stopped in my tracks because, of course, it's always interesting to hear what movie revolutionized something. And the comment was, two words, old school. Now, I haven't seen Will Ferrell's movie, Old School. I'm sure it's pretty funny. Will Ferrell's pretty funny. But I couldn't believe that that was their frame of reference when all I could think of was two words, animal house. I walked through because the kids already think I'm a freak because my first computer didn't even have a hard drive. So I don't think they really believe that I'm really not too old to have a job anymore. So I decided to pass on that. So I'd really like to thank you for sharing Animal House with your listeners because Craft List listeners are better. And so they're definitely the people that will enjoy the movie. It will help carry it on. So thanks again. Love the podcast. Love the book. And appreciate absolutely everything you do. Hope you're having a great day. Thank you. So I know some of you are sitting there and saying, Heather, that was a voicemail about Bleak House. And I know it was, but it's also my way of telling you that Bleak House is now complete and in the shop. If you are one of the people who purchased the entire Bleak House audiobook in advance, knowing that Bundle 5 was missing the last chunk, just know that over the next three or four days, I will be going through every single electronic receipt in the shop, identifying you, and then sending you a link to download the complete Bundle 5. But Jennifer, I knit alone on Ravelry, was telling the truth. I did, in fair use education, lift a tiny little bit of audio from the movie Animal House, used to illustrate a point. And and this is where my whole theory of teaching to the joke (laughs) becomes really obvious. There's a character in Bleak House whose use of logic is, how shall we say, skewed, whacked out, insane. I don't know. The guy is just, well, he's a nut is what he is. And most of the book, he's kind of funny. And then by the time you get to the end, it's, it's, it's actually really not that funny anymore. And kind of like that circular logic that you get with the, I'm the president. And so what I did wasn't illegal. And it, and it wasn't illegal because the president can't do anything illegal. That's, that's begging the question, actually. And it's, it's circular logic. Well, there are a couple of scenes in Animal House that present humorously 
such marvelously flawed logic (laughs) that every time I taught logic and rhetoric, I started with a few movie clips. And I think I probably talked about this back when I was teaching rhetoric at the University of Arizona. But the scenes I use, for those of you who are instructors and think that this might be helpful, or for those of you who are trying to teach your children, the first scene is from Thank You for Smoking. And you cannot show the children the whole movie, but you can show them one particular scene. It is the vanilla chocolate ice cream scene. And if you look up thank you for smoking plus vanilla ice cream, or thank you for smoking plus kid plus ice cream, you will find the scene. It is a marvelous piece talking about persuasion. And in in that case, it's an excellent demonstration of manipulative persuasion, where your goal is to win, not to educate or enlighten or help or be honest or anything like that. So that's the first one. And then we watch the Brutus and Anthony speeches from, I I use the black and white Marlon Brando because, hey, it's Marlon Brando in a toga, right? And James, is it James Mason who plays Brutus, I think? He's very, very good. I know, right? Like I'm going to come on here and say, James Mason, what a tosser. No, it's a great scene. And I think Brando does a fine job. Maybe not the best, but really not bad. And so you're able to look at the rhetoric of their two speeches because Brutus is all logic. He's a stoic and he's very straightforward. And he lays out the reasons for why they did what they did to Caesar. And there it is. I don't want to spoil anything for you, but they stab him. Then Antony comes up, and Antony pulls out the appeals to emotion. You know, oh, pardon me, I have to take a moment. My heart is too heavy to go on. (laughs) Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me do this really amazing speech that's going to make you decide to kill Brutus. And Antony's use of rhetoric is pathos and ethos. He's appealing to their emotions, but he's also appealing to them as a trusted person, this ethos. It's not just, oh, I'm an ethical person. It's, I am a person who you can trust for these reasons. I fought, I'm a a trusted advisor. You all have seen me. You all know me. Oh, and by the way, you all knew Caesar too, because he hung out with all y'all. And when I offered him the crown at the Feast of the Lupercal, he put it aside three times. He didn't want to be king. He was your guy. And when he won battles, what did he do? He brought back slaves and money, and he handed it all out to all y'all. So I'm sure Brutus had a good reason for doing what he did, because Brutus is an honorable man. And Antony uses repetition all the way through that speech. Brutus is an honorable man. And at first it starts out like, Brutus? Brutus is an honorable man. He's a citizen. He's a senator. We all know him. That's awesome. But as the speech goes on, and as Antony gets more and more angry, subtly, not raging, but angry, it goes from, hey, this Brutus guy, he's just trying to tell you the truth. He's a good guy, to, sure, I'm positive they had some great reasons for what they did because, you know, Brutus is an honorable man. And by the time he gets done with it, he said the same words. But he says them differently, with different impact, different meaning behind them. So that's the second great scene to use in teaching rhetoric. 
And then you end with Animal House. There are two fantastic scenes in Animal House. Speeches. There are more than two fantastic scenes in Animal House. But there are two great speeches. One is when the Delta House is about to get thrown off campus or or thrown out entirely. They're going to have their charter yanked and everything. And one of the members, his nickname, which for reasons that never become completely clear, is Otter. He stands up in the double secret probation hearing and takes the administration's fight against the Delta House and turns it into, in a a two-minute scene, a fight against maligning the Constitution and gets them all to rally and and march out singing the national anthem or humming humming it and it's it's hysterical and his logic <laughs> is flawed but followable and so it makes it a lot of fun to watch and then the the last speech that you can use from that is John Belushi's did we give up when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor the Germans don't stop him he's on a roll and it just it just gets weirder from there although i think I think they're swearing in that scene, and I had to beep it out. Anyway, that was my little advertisement for Bleak House, because it is a fun book, and it is probably a lot easier to listen to than it is to read all 800 and pages, and it is available in the shop, and there will be a link to it in the show notes. But that is also my advertisement for Animal House, because hearing Jennifer's voicemail, I was terrified to think that Old School, which I haven't seen all of, I've seen part of it, could be the the movie the movie that cast out Animal House. The National Lampoon writers, certainly back in the late seventies and the in the early eighties, were stunning. I mean, some really impressive writers. And you don't get scenes like those with the the flawed logic, the referencing and sub-referencing history incorrectly, knowing that the audience will get it. You don't get a lot of that kind of writing anymore. And so it's well for me and clearly for Jennifer as well. It's a pleasure when you have an opportunity to watch something like that, if you haven't seen it. It's raunchy, I'm saying, but very, very funny. Boy, you didn't know you were going to get a manifesto on teaching rhetoric, did you? <laughs> you never know what you're going to get on Craplet, except good books. You know you'll get good books. On the same topic of manifestos, I came across, just happened upon a tweet, where one Twitterer was talking about the importance of crafting, and what with this being craftlet? I followed the link. It was an interesting blog post, and I have linked to it. It's about a new book that is out. Uh, that's a it's a crafting manifesto. It's a craftifesto, and it reminded me of the early days of the podcast when I often commented on how the more crafting type people you meet, people who make things with their hands or do things with their hands or create beauty of any sort with their hands. These people are just marvelous people. And that there's, there is something about that compulsion to create that comes from a really wonderful place. And whether it's the chicken or the egg thing, I don't know. I don't know if the compulsion comes first or the, the person's just wonderful and then the compulsion comes. No clue. But the article was interesting and it references friend of the show, Kim Worker. And I thought some of you might be interested in taking a look. So I have that linked to from the show notes for episode 359 at craftlit.com. Don't forget, you too can join the conversation here by dialing 1-206-350-1642, and that will get you to the voicemail line. Or if you have a computer with a microphone on it, go to craftlit.com, and along the right-hand side, you'll see a little tab that says 
send feedback. And it opens up a doohickey that lets you record a message. Although I think there's a time limit on the computer message. But either way, it comes to me as an audio file that I can play. There was also a comment in the show notes about depression. And it's been very interesting because there's been, not because of Craftlet or me or anything like that, but for obvious Robin Williams reasons, there's been a lot of discussion about depression, which honestly is a wonderful thing. It's something that that people have a hard time understanding. Anything that alters your state of mind to such a degree that medication is required can, can be a very strange, scary thing. And the link that was left in the comments was for a depression game. If you have depression, if you know someone, if you are living with someone who wrestles with depression, you may want to really check this out and go and spend 20 minutes fiddling around with it. Because it's, it's very hard to understand what it's like from the outside. Playing a game that helps you understand what it's like to be depressed, maybe not such a bad idea. So there's a link to that in the show notes as well. If you are planning to go to Stitches East, that would be October 9th through 12th this year, 2014, at the Convention Center and Marriott in Hartford, Connecticut, there is a good chance you could see me in person, in the flesh. I will be there for one night. I will be there when Franklin gives his talk. It's the only chance I will have to meet a whole bunch of people in the flesh who I've been trying to meet in the flesh for quite a while. So I think I will be training up just for that afternoon and evening and say hi to everybody, see Franklin, shake his hand, turn around, come back home. And that will be that. But if you will be at Stitches East, please, please, please get in touch with me, Heather at craftlit.com. Or you can call (laughs) 1-206-350-1642. And we'll figure out a place and a time and a which way, that way, everything to hook up and get a chance to see each other. That'd be so fun. And North and South. We have one more listener voicemail. And this one is on north and south. So I'm going to go ahead and start our book talk off with her phone call. Hi, Heather. My name is Danielle, and I just got done listening to the latest episode of Craftlet, and I know you said that was a frustrating chapter for you, but I absolutely loved it. I really admired the parallelism in that chapter. The um, Margaret sending Higgins, who is unwilling to go talk to Thornton, while Mr. Thornton sends his mother, who's perfectly unwilling to go speak with Margaret. Both of them do that out of a sense of duty that they've promised someone. And then being treated in very similar ways, Margaret was trying to get Higgins to appeal to Thornton's higher self, as Thornton was doing the same, trying to appeal to Margaret's higher self. I just found that very fascinating. And the fact that both people left without accomplishing what the sender had wanted. And both knew they weren't going to get that. Anyway, I just thought that was really, really fascinating and really enjoyed that aspect. Thanks again for this podcast. Take care. I thought Danielle did an excellent job of summing up those bits of of chapter 38. I also think I've been trying to remember I did not go back to listen, but I think I think some of my frustration 
with that chapter was that it didn't, I wanted things to work out better. (laughs) I wanted Higgins and Thornton to go off and have a beer because they're both such marvelous characters. But you're right. I mean, it's the tension. It's that dichotomy. We've had dualities all the way through. As the the, um, voicemail we got last week was talking about, even Frederick and Boucher, there are all kinds of parallels between different pairs of characters that are uh, becoming more and more clear the further we get into the book, or the actually, the closer we get to the end. We're closer to the end now than we are the beginning. We have, I think it's 12 chapters left. Some of them are fairly sizable and some of them are pretty short and I'll bundle those. But today's chapter is definitely an interesting one. It's been a long time since we've had a chapter like this. There are many different layers to it and different different chunks of things, different kinds of text and subtext that we're getting thrown at us. Because at the very end of last chapter, chapter 39, we were told that Mr. Bell was coming for a visit. And if you recall, Mr. Bell is Mr. Hale's friend from Oxford, who's quite well-to-do, but who was born in Milton. So he actually owns the property that Thornton is leasing for his factory. So there's this interesting little triangle there going on between the Hale family, Mr. Bell, and Mr. Thornton. Now, Mr. Bell is a, is a fun character because he likes to have fun. He reminds me of one of my husband's uncles, who's, who's passed on, but who used to love giving everyone a hard time. And when my husband was young, he was terrified of this man. But as an adult, and, and I only ever knew him, from a position of being an adult. I loved this. He was so much fun because he he would argue that the sky was purple. And when he finally got you to turn around and say, yes, my God, you're right, the sky is purple. He would go, it's looking blue to me today. Ah, But it was fun. It was always fun. And Mr. Bell doesn't go so far as to argue that the sky is purple, but he does like to nudge and and kind of go after you. And to him, it's all in good fun. And if you're in the right mood, <laughs> I'm sure it would be all in good fun. But if you're in the wrong mood, I don't know. Have you been ever been in one of those situations where someone is trying to cheer you up and it just makes you want to spit because you don't want to be cheered up right now? We might have a character doing a little bit of that in today's chapter. But because we get two Oxford men together, we also are going to get a ton of obscure weird references. The first, you'll hear a line that when he wakened, he felt hardly able to separate the Una from the Duessa. All right, so those of you who have read Spencer's Fairy Queen, book one, you may recall that there are contrasted women. There are women whose images are put juxtaposed against each other and their allegories. Una, who is, not surprisingly, indivisible, Una, represents truth and duessa. You can see where this is going. Duality is is the the false side of things. So you've got truth and you've got falseness. And in Spencer's poem, The Fairy Queen, the duessa appears to the Red Cross Knight in the image of Una Mm -hmm. and deceives him. So not being able to tell the Una from the duessa would be somebody's potentially conning you. You'll hear a reference to a Kilkenny cat's tail. T-A-I-L. This is actually a reference to an old Irish tale, T-A-L-E, that's about two cats from Kilkenny, Ireland, who fought until their tails and claws were all that was left of them. So that's where that comes from. 
Not that cats would ever behave like that. Not the lol cats. You will hear the term Oxonian that refers to Oxford University. And during the Victorian era, uh, Oxford was kind of maligned as being medieval, <laughs> which I think the people at Oxford said, cool, good, awesome, that's us. Wear it with pride. A home question would be something that was personal, a question that shouldn't be asked out here in public. That's something for home. One of the characters today will say, you would like the heptarchy back again then. The heptarchy, seven, is a reference to the seven ancient kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England, which preserved their individual rights within a system of loosely associated government, which is basically states' rights. In the United States, this would be a, an argument for states' rights. If you were pro-heptarchy, you would be pro-aligned and allied states, but without a federal government overseeing everything, perhaps just a, a council that met and discussed the issues that were facing the seven tribes. But being pro-heptarchy would be anti-federal government, or, or a, a strong federal government anyway. There is a reference to the genie in the Arabian Nights. Can you believe that? The genie in the Arabian Nights brought Prince Karalmazan to match with the fairies Princess Badura. So in, in that particular story, in the Arabian Nights, the prince and princess, they're brought together, they fall in love, then they're separated, but then magic, the genie, finally brings them together at the end. So that's, that's all that is when you hear that reference. Now there's one reference here that is so Oxfordian <laughs> that I actually groaned when I read it. The name Margaret. Here we all go. We will learn the origin of the name Margaret. It is derived from the Greek word for pearl. So guess what nickname someone is going to give Margaret? Yes, that's right. Pearl. Don't have scarlet letter flashbacks. This is a completely different thing. The slang term acraddy, C-R-A-D-D-Y, is just another word for a puzzle. We have one more letter that I wanted to read to you. This is a, a reading letter, not a voicemail. Kate writes on post 346. So this is back a ways. Hi, Heather. I've just got this far in my catch-up, and one thing I don't think has been addressed so far is Margaret's naivete. It's her second proposal, and she still hasn't gotten around to the idea that any man might be interested in her as a marriage partner rather than just as a friend. I don't remember the name of Edith's brother-in-law. I think she means Henry Lennox. But Margaret similarly thought he was basically mocking her and wished he wouldn't. This reminds me of myself at 12, when boys in my year at school started asking me out and I was convinced they were precisely making fun of me, and I rejected them all starkly. It didn't help that some of them had been bullying me in my primary school year the year before. I was never approached again by anyone in my secondary school. No grade loss. And was still getting used to the idea, because it had been almost entirely on hold, in my first year at university. So perhaps I'm reading myself far too much into Margaret, but I do think that for whatever reason, Margaret doesn't see herself as marriage material and therefore can't respond other than defensively, which is perceived of as haughtily, to either of the men who approach her because she doesn't know how to deal with them otherwise. 
her actual feelings about them as men are kind of irrelevant, except as part of her self-rationalizations. I thought that was a really interesting post, and I think you are going to find it really interesting today to have that connected to today's chapters. Well, we have lots to get to. Lots happens in this chapter, and uh, and I don't want to hold you back from any of it. So, with all of that preparation under our belts, let's go listen to Chapter 40 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 40 Out of Tune I have no wrong where I can claim no right, nor taken me from where I have nothing had. Yet of my woe I cannot so be quite, namely, since that another may be glad, with that that thus in sorrow makes me sad. Wyatt Margaret had not expected much pleasure to herself from Mr. Bell's visit. She had only looked forward to it on her father's account, but when her godfather came, she at once fell into the most natural position of friendship in the world. He said she had no merit in being what she was, a girl so entirely after his own heart. It was an hereditary power which she had, to walk in and take possession of his regard, while she, in reply, gave him much credit for being so fresh and young under his fellow's cap and gown. Fresh and young in warmth and kindness, I mean. I'm afraid I must own that I think your opinions are the oldest and mustiest I have met with this long time. Here, this daughter of yours, Hale, her residence in Milton has quite corrupted her. She's a Democrat, a Red Republican, a member of the Peace Society, a socialist. Papa, it's all because I'm standing up for the progress of commerce. Mr. Bell would have had it keep still at exchanging wild beast skins for acorns. No, no, I'd dig the ground and grow potatoes, and I'd shave the wild beast skins and make the wool into broadcloth. Don't exaggerate, Missy, but I'm tired of this bustle. Everybody rushing over everybody in their hurry to get rich. It is not everyone who can sit comfortably in a set of college rooms and let his riches grow without any exertion of his own. No doubt there is many a man here who would be thankful if his property would increase as yours has done without his taking any trouble about it said Mr. Hale. I don't believe they would. It's the bustle and the struggle they like. As for sitting still and learning from the past or shaping out the future by faithful work done in a prophetic spirit, why, pooh, I don't believe there's a man in Milton who knows how to sit still, and it is a great art. Milton people, I suspect, think Oxford men don't know how to move. It would be a very good thing if they mixed a little more. It might be good for the Miltoners. Many things might be good for them which would be very disagreeable for other people. Are you not a Milton man yourself? asked Margaret. 
I should have thought you would have been proud of your town. I confess I don't see what there is to be proud of. If you'll only come to Oxford, Margaret, I will show you a place to glory in. Well, said Mr. Hale, Mr. Thornton is coming to drink tea with us tonight, and he is as proud of Milton as you of Oxford. You two must try and make each other a little more liberal-minded. I don't want to be more liberal-minded, thank you, said Mr. Bell. Is Mr. Thornton coming to tea, Papa? asked Margaret in a low voice. Either to tea or soon after, he could not tell. He told us not to wait. Mr. Thornton had determined that he would make no inquiry of his mother as to how far she had put her project into execution of speaking to Margaret about the impropriety of her conduct. He felt pretty sure that, if this interview took place, his mother's account of what passed at it would only annoy and chagrin him, though he would all the time be aware of the coloring which it received by passing through her mind. He shrank from hearing Margaret's very name mentioned. He, while he blamed her, while he was jealous of her, while he renounced her, he loved her sorely in spite of himself. He dreamt of her. He dreamt she came dancing towards him with outspread arms and with a lightness and gaiety which made him loathe her, even while it allured him. But the impression of this figure of Margaret, with all Margaret's character taken out of it, as completely as if some evil spirit had got possession of her form, was so deeply stamped upon his imagination that when he wakened he felt hardly able to separate the Una from the Duessa, and the dislike he had to the latter seemed to envelop and disfigure the former. Yet he was too proud to acknowledge his weakness by avoiding the sight of her. He would neither seek an opportunity of being in her company nor avoid it. To convince himself of his power of self-control, he lingered over every piece of business this afternoon. He forced every movement into unnatural slowness and deliberation, and it was, consequently, past eight o'clock before he reached Mr. Hale's. Then there were business arrangements to be transacted in the study with Mr. Bell, and the latter kept on sitting over the fire and talking wearily long after all business was transacted and when they might just as well have gone upstairs. But Mr. Thornton would not say a word about moving their quarters. He chafed and chafed and thought Mr. Bell a most prosy companion— while Mr. Bell returned the compliment in secret by considering Mr. Thornton about as brusque and curt a fellow as he had ever met with, and terribly gone off both in intelligence and manner. At last, some slight noise in the room above suggested the desirableness of moving there. They found Margaret with a letter open before her, eagerly discussing its contents with her father. On the entrance of the gentleman, it was immediately put aside— Mr. Thornton's eager senses caught some few words of Mr. Hale's to Mr. Bell. A letter from Henry Lennox. It makes Margaret very hopeful. Mr. Bell nodded. Margaret was red as a rose when Mr. Thornton looked at her. He had the greatest mind in the world to get up and go out of the room that very instant and never set foot in the house again. 
We were thinking, said Mr. Hale, that you and Mr. Thornton had taken Margaret's advice and were each trying to convert the other. You were so long in the study. And you thought there would be nothing left of us but an opinion, like the Kilkenny cat's tail. Pray, whose opinion did you think would have the most obstinate vitality? Mr. Thornton had not a notion what they were talking about and disdained to inquire. Mr. Hale politely enlightened him. Mr. Thornton, we were accusing Mr. Bell this morning of a kind of Oxonian medieval bigotry against his native town, and we, Margaret, I believe, suggested that it would do him good to associate a little with Milton manufacturers. I beg your pardon. Margaret thought it would do the Milton manufacturers good to associate a little more with Oxford men. Now, wasn't it so, Margaret? I believe I thought it would do both good to see a little more of the other. I, I did not know it was my idea any more than Papa's. And so you see, Mr. Thornton, we ought to have been improving each other downstairs instead of talking over vanished families of Smiths and Harrisons. However, I am willing to do my part now. I wonder when you Milton men intend to live. All your lives seem to be spent in gathering together the materials for life. By living, I suppose you mean enjoyment? Yes, enjoyment. I don't specify of what, because I trust we should both consider mere pleasure as very poor enjoyment. I would rather have the nature of the enjoyment defined. Well, enjoyment of leisure, enjoyment of the power and influence which money gives. You are all striving for money. What do you want it for? Mr. Thornton was silent. Then he said, I really don't know, but money is not what I strive for. What then? It is a home question. I shall have to lay myself open to such a catechist, and I am not sure that I am prepared to do it. No, said Mr. Hale. Don't let us be personal in our catechism. You are neither of you representative men. You are each of you too individual for that. I am not sure whether to consider that as a compliment or not. I should like to be the representative of Oxford with its beauty and its learning and its proud old history. What do you say, Margaret? Ought I to be flattered? I don't know, Oxford, but there is a difference between being the representative of a city and the representative man of its inhabitants. Very true, Miss Margaret. Now I remember. You were against me this morning and were quite Miltonian and manufacturing in your preferences. Margaret saw the quick glance of surprise that Mr. Thornton gave her, and she was annoyed at the construction which he might put on this speech of Mr. Bell's. Mr. Bell went on. Ah, I wish I could show you our high street, our Radcliffe Square. I am leaving out our colleges just as I give Mr. Thornton leave to omit his factories in speaking of the charms of Milton. 
I have a right to abuse my birthplace. Remember, I am a Milton man. Mr. Thornton was annoyed more than he ought to have been at all that Mr. Bell was saying. He was not in a mood for joking. At another time, he could have enjoyed Mr. Bell's half-testy condemnation of a town where the life was so at variance with every habit he had formed, but now he was galled enough to attempt to defend what was never meant to be seriously attacked. I don't set up Milton as a model of a town. Not in architecture? slyly asked Mr. Bell. No. We've been too busy to attend to mere outward appearances. Don't say mere outward appearances, said Mr. Hale gently. They impress us all from childhood upward, every day of our life. Wait a little while, said Mr. Thornton. Remember, we are of a different race from the Greeks, to whom beauty was everything and to whom Mr. Bell might speak of a life of leisure and serene enjoyment, much of which entered in through their outward senses. I don't mean to despise them any more than I would ape them, but I belong to Teutonic blood. It is a little mingled in this part of England to what it is in others. We retain much of their language, we retain more of their spirit. We do not look upon life as a time for enjoyment, but as a time for action and exertion. Our glory and our beauty arise out of our inward strength, which makes us victorious over material resistance and over greater difficulties still. We are Teutonic up here in Darkshire in another way. We ate to have laws made for us at a distance. We wish people would allow us to write ourselves instead of continually meddling with their imperfect legislation. We stand up for self-government and oppose centralization. In short, you would like the heptarchy back again. Well, at any rate, I revoke what I said this morning, that you Milton people did not reverence the past. You are regular worshippers of Thor. If we do not reverence the past as you do in Oxford, it is because we want something which can apply to the present more directly. It is fine when the study of the past leads to a prophecy of the future, but to men groping in new circumstances, it would be finer if the words of experience could direct us how to act in what concerns us most intimately and immediately, which is full of difficulties that must be encountered, and upon the mode in which they are met and conquered, not merely pushed aside for the time, depends our future. Out of the wisdom of the past, help us over the present. But no, people can speak of utopia much more easily than of the next day's duty, and yet, when that duty is all done by others who so ready to cry, Fie for shame. And all this time, I don't see what you are talking about. Would you Milton men condescend to send up your today's difficulty to Oxford? You have not tried us yet. Mr. Thornton laughed outright at this. I believe I was talking with reference to a good deal that has been troubling us of late. 
I was thinking of the strikes we have gone through, which are troublesome and injurious things enough, as I am finding to my cost. And yet this last strike, under which I am smarting, has been respectable. A respectable strike, said Mr. Bell. That sounds as if you were far gone in the worship of Thor. Margaret felt rather than saw that Mr. Thornton was chagrined by the repeated turning into jest of what he was feeling as very serious. She tried to change the conversation from a subject about which one party cared little, while to the other it was deeply, because personally, interesting. She forced herself to say something. Edith says she finds the printed calicoes in Corfu better and cheaper than in London. Does she? said her father. I think that must be one of Edith's exaggerations. Are you sure of it, Margaret? I am sure she says so, Papa. Then I am sure of the fact, said Mr. Bell. Margaret, I go so far in my idea of your truthfulness that it shall cover your cousin's character. I don't believe a cousin of yours could exaggerate. Is Miss Ailes so remarkable for truth, said Mr. Thornton bitterly. The moment he had done so, he could have bitten his tongue out. What was he, and why should he stab her with her shame in this way? How evil he was tonight, possessed by ill humor at being detained so long from her, irritated by the mention of some name because he thought it belonged to a more successful lover, now ill-tempered because he had been unable to cope with a light heart against one who was trying, by gay and careless speeches, to make the evening pass pleasantly away, the kind old friend to all parties, whose manner by this time might be well known to Mr. Thornton, who had been acquainted with him for many years. And then to speak to Margaret as he had done. She did not get up and leave the room as she had done in former days when his abruptness or his temper had annoyed her. She sat quite still, after the first momentary glance of grieved surprise that made her eyes look like some child's who has met with an unexpected rebuff. They slowly dilated into mournful, reproachful sadness, and then they fell, and she bent over her work and did not speak again. But he could not help looking at her, and he saw a sigh tremble over her body as if she quivered in some unwanted chill. He felt as the mother would have done in the midst of her rocking it and rating it had she been called away before her slow, confiding smile, implying perfect trust in mother's love, had proved the renewing of its love. He gave short, sharp answers. He was uneasy and cross, unable to discern between jest and earnest, anxious only for a look, a word of hers, before which to prostrate himself in penitent humility. But she neither looked nor spoke. Her round taper fingers flew in and out of her sewing as steadily and swiftly as if that were the business of her life. 
She could not care for him, he thought, or else the passionate fervor of his wish would have forced her to raise those eyes, if but for an instant, to read the late repentance in his. He could have struck her before he left, in order that by some strange overt act of rudeness he might earn the privilege of telling her the remorse that gnawed at his heart. It was well that the long walk in the open air wound up this evening for him. It sobered him back into grave resolution that henceforth he would see as little of her as possible, since the very sight of that face and form, the very sounds of that voice, like the soft winds of pure melody, had such power to move him from his balance. Well, he had known what love was, a sharp pang, a fierce experience, in the midst of whose flames he was struggling. But through that furnace he would fight his way out into the serenity of middle age, all the richer and more human for having known this great passion. When he had somewhat abruptly left the room, Margaret rose from her seat and began silently to fold up her work, the long seams were heavy and had an unusual weight for her languid arms. The round lines in her face took a lengthened, straighter form, and her whole appearance was that of one who had gone through a day of great fatigue. As the three prepared for bed, Mr. Bell muttered forth a little condemnation of Mr. Thornton. I never saw a fellow so sport by success. He can't bear a word, a jest of any kind. Everything seems to touch on the soreness of his high dignity. Formerly, he was as simple and noble as the open day. You could not offend him because he had no vanity. He is not vain now, said Margaret, turning round from the table and speaking with quiet distinctness. Tonight he has not been like himself. Something must have annoyed him before he came here. Mr. Bell gave her one of his sharp glances from above his spectacles. She stood it quite calmly, but after she had left the room, he suddenly asked, Hale, did it ever strike you that Thornton and your daughter have what the French call a tendresse for each other? Never, said Mr. Hale, first startled and then flurried by the new idea. No, I am sure you are wrong. I am almost certain you are mistaken. If there is anything, it is all on Mr. Thornton's side, poor fellow. I hope and trust he is not thinking of her, for I am sure she would not have him. Well, I am a bachelor and have steered clear of love affairs all my life, so perhaps my opinion is not worth having. Or else I should say there were very pretty symptoms about her. Then I am sure you are wrong, said Mr. Hale. He may care for her, though she really has been almost rude to him at times. But she? Why, Margaret would never think of him, I'm sure. Such a thing has never entered her head. Entering her heart would do. I merely threw out a suggestion of what might be. I dare say I was wrong. And whether I was wrong or right, I'm very sleepy. So, 
having disturbed your night's rest, as I can see, with my untimely fancies, I'll betake myself with an easy mind to my own. But Mr. Hale resolved that he would not be disturbed by any such nonsensical idea. So he lay awake, determining not to think about it. Mr. Bell took his leave the next day, bidding Margaret look to him as one who had a right to help and protect her in all her troubles of whatever nature they might be. To Mr. Hale, he said, That Margaret of yours has gone deep into my heart. Take care of her, for she is a very precious creature, a great deal too good for Milton, only fit for Oxford, in fact. The town, I mean, not the men. I can't match her yet. When I can, I shall bring my young man to stand side by side with your young woman, just as the genie in the Arabian Nights brought Prince Karalmazan to match with the fairy's Princess Badura. I beg you'll do no such thing. Remember the misfortunes that ensued. And besides, I can't spare Margaret. No, on second thoughts, we'll have her to nurse us ten years hence, when we shall be two cross old invalids. Seriously, Hale, I wish you'd leave Milton, which is a most unsuitable place for you, though it was my recommendation in the first instance. If you would, I'd swallow my shadows of doubts and take a college living, and you and Margaret should come and live at the parsonage you to be a sort of lay curate and take the unwashed off my hands, and she to be our housekeeper, the village Lady Bountiful, by day, and read us to sleep in the evenings. I could be very happy in such a life. What do you think of it? Never, said Mr. Hale decidedly. My one great change has been made, and my price of suffering paid. Here I stay out my life, and here will I be buried and lost in the crowd. I don't give up my plan yet, only I won't bait you with it any more just now. Where's the pearl? Come, Margaret, give me a farewell kiss, and remember, my dear, where you may find a true friend as far as his capability goes. You are my child, Margaret, remember that, and God bless you. So they fell back into the monotony of the quiet life they would henceforth lead. There was no invalid to hope and fear about. Even the Higginses, so long a vivid interest, seemed to have receded from any need of immediate thought. The Boucher children, left motherless orphans, claimed what of Margaret's care she could bestow, and she went pretty often to see Mary Higgins, who had charge of them. The two families were living in one house. The elder children were at humble schools. The younger ones were tended, in Mary's absence at her work, by the kind neighbor whose good sense had struck Margaret at the time of Boucher's death. Of course, she was paid for her trouble, and, indeed, in all his little plans and arrangements for these orphan children, Nicholas showed a sober judgment and regulated method of thinking— which were at variance with his former, more eccentric jerks of action. He was so steady at his work that Margaret did not often see him during these winter months, but when she did, 
she saw that he winced away from any reference to the father of those children whom he had so fully and heartily taken under his care. He did not speak easily of Mr. Thornton. To tell the truth, said he, he fairly bamboozles me. He is two chaps. One chap I knowed of old as were master all o'er. To other chap hasn't an ounce of master's flesh about him. Uh, them two chaps is bound up in one body as a craddy for me to find out. I'll not be bit by it, though. Meanwhile, he comes here pretty often. That's how I know the chap that's a man not a master. And I reckon he's taken aback by me pretty much as I am by him, for he sits and listens and stares as if I were some strange beast newly caught in some of the zones. But... I'm none daunted. It would take a deal to daunt me in my own house, as he says. And I'd tell him some of my mind that I reckon he'd have been the better of hearing when he were a younger man. And does he not answer you? asked Mr. Hale. Well, I'll not say the advantage is all on his side, for all I take credit for improving him above a bit. Sometimes he says a rough thing or two, which is not agreeable to look at at first, but as a queer smack of truth in it when you come to chew it. It'll be coming tonight, I reckon, about them childish schooling. He's not satisfied with the make of it and wants for to examine him. What are they? began Mr. Hale, but Margaret, touching his arm, showed him her watch. It is nearly seven, she said. The evenings are getting longer now. Come, Papa. She did not breathe freely till they were some distance from the house. Then, as she became more calm, she wished that she had not been in so great a hurry, for somehow they saw Mr. Thornton but very seldom now, and he might have come to see Higgins, and for the old friendship's sake she should like to have seen him tonight. Yes, he came very seldom, even for the dull, cold purpose of lessons. Mr. Hale was disappointed in his pupil's lukewarmness about Greek literature, which had but a short time ago so great an interest for him. And now it often happened that a hurried note from Mr. Thornton would arrive just at the last moment, saying that he was so much engaged that he could not come to read with Mr. Hale that evening. And though other pupils had taken more than his place as to time— no one was like his first scholar in Mr. Hale's heart. He was depressed and sad at this partial cessation of an intercourse which had become dear to him, and he used to sit pondering over the reason that could have occasioned this change. He startled Margaret one evening as she sat at her work by suddenly asking, Margaret, had you ever any reason for thinking that Mr. Thornton cared for you? He almost blushed as he put this question, but Mr. Bell's scouted idea recurred to him, and the words were out of his mouth before he well knew what he was about. Margaret did not answer immediately, but by the bent drooping of her head, he guessed what her reply would be. Yes, I believe. Oh, Papa, I should have told you. And she dropped her work and hid her face in her hands. No, dear, don't think that I am impertinently curious. 
I am sure you would have told me if you had felt that you could return his regard. Did he speak to you about it? No answer at first, but by and by, a little, gentle, reluctant. Yes. And you refused him? A long sigh, a more helpless, nerveless attitude, and another. Yes. But before her father could speak, Margaret lifted up her face, rosy with some beautiful shame, and, fixing her eyes upon him, said, Now, Papa, I have told you this, and I cannot tell you more. And then the whole thing is so painful to me. Every word and action connected with it is so unspeakably bitter that I cannot bear to think of it. Oh, Papa, I am sorry to have lost you this friend, but I could not help it. But, oh, I am very sorry. She sat down on the ground and laid her head on his knees. I, too, am sorry, my dear. Mr. Bell quite startled me when he said some idea of the kind. Mr. Bell? Oh, did Mr. Bell see it? A little, but he took it into his head that you... How shall I say it, that you were not ungraciously disposed towards Mr. Thornton? I knew that could never be. I hoped the whole thing was but an imagination. But I knew too well what your real feelings were to suppose that you could ever like Mr. Thornton in that way. But I am very sorry. They were very quiet and still for some minutes. But... On stroking her cheek in a caressing way soon after, he was almost shocked to find her face wet with tears. As he touched her, she sprang up and, smiling with forced brightness, began to talk of the Lennoxes with such a vehement desire to turn the conversation that Mr. Hale was too tender-hearted to try to force it back into the old channel. Tomorrow, yes, tomorrow they will be back in Harley Street. Oh, how strange it will be. I wonder what room they will make into the nursery. Aunt Shaw will be happy with the baby. Fancy Edith and Mamma and Captain Lennox. I wonder what he will do with himself now he has sold out. I'll tell you what, said her father, anxious to indulge her in this fresh subject of interest. I think I must spare you for a fortnight just to run up to town and see the travellers. You could learn more by half an hour's conversation with Mr. Henry Lennox about Frederick's chances than in a dozen of these letters of his, so it would, in fact, be uniting business with pleasure. No, Papa, you cannot spare me, and what's more, I won't be spared. Then, after a pause, she added, I am losing hope, sadly, about Frederick. He is letting us down gently, but I can see that Mr. Lennox himself has no hope of hunting up the witnesses under years and years of time. No, said she, that bubble was very pretty and very dear to our hearts, but it has burst like many another, and we must console ourselves with being glad that Frederick is so happy and with being a great deal to each other. So don't offend me by talking of being able to spare me, Papa, for... I assure you, you can't. But the idea of a change took root and germinated in Margaret's heart, although not in the way in which her father proposed it at first. 
She began to consider how desirable something of the kind would be to her father, whose spirits, always feeble, now became too frequently depressed, and whose health, though he never complained, had been seriously affected by his wife's illness and death. There were the regular hours of reading with his pupils, but that all giving and no receiving could no longer be called companionship, as in the old days when Mr. Thornton came to study under him. Margaret was conscious of the want under which he was suffering, unknown to himself, the want of a man's intercourse with men. At Helston there had been perpetual occasions for an interchange of visits with neighboring clergymen, and the poor laborers in the fields, or leisurely tramping home at eve, or tending their cattle in the forest, were always at liberty to speak or be spoken to. But in Milton everyone was too busy for quiet speech or any ripened intercourse of thought. What they said was about business, very present and actual. And when the tension of mind relating to their daily affairs was over, they sunk into fallow rest until next morning. The workman was not to be found after the day's work was done. He had gone away to some lecture or some club or some beer shop according to his degree of character. Mr. Hale thought of trying to deliver a course of lectures at some of the institutions, but he contemplated doing this so much as an effort of duty, and with so little of the genial impulse of love towards his work and its end, that Margaret was sure that it would not be well done until he could look upon it with some kind of zest. So finally, someone got through to Hale. Because the man is so blind. And he's a bachelor, Mr. Bell. Mr. Bell's the one who sees the truth. And poor Margaret. And poor Mr. Thornton. Oh, wasn't that just a horrible foot-in-mouth moment for Thornton? I felt so bad for him. Because there was nothing. Mean, what can you do in a situation like that? What could he have done? He couldn't pull it back. He couldn't really directly apologize for the truth snark comment. He's out of luck. And he knew he hurt her. Mr. Bell is an interesting character. We will see more of him. But now, the important part is that Margaret now has this idea of going back to Harley Street and hanging out with Edith. And, you know, to Kate's comment earlier, the one that I read before we listened to the chapter, I can't help but wonder if some of Margaret's naivete isn't naivete in the traditional ingenue sense, but naivete because she spent most of her tween and teenage years with Edith. And Edith is clearly a flirt and the the clothes horse and the one that everybody paid attention to. Plus, I mean, she's the daughter in the house that Margaret's living in. So, mm. But if you were just pretty and quite intelligent and you were always in the room next to the beautiful butterfly, you are not going to see yourself as marriage material because everybody else is going to be talking about getting the pretty one married off first even though it's become clear over the course of this book that Margaret is anything but unattractive. I used to call girls who looked like Edith cheerleader pretty. And then there are other people who are beautiful, but they don't look like a cheerleader or they don't look like a model 
but they're they're beautiful. They're pleasant to look at. They're they're well put together. They are they're beautiful. And Margaret's always struck me as that kind of young woman. And Edith has always struck me as cheerleader pretty, which is not an indictment of cheerleaders. Some of my good friends were cheerleaders. But I promised you two further announcements, big ones, before we leave today. So while you ponder on the chapter, also ponder on this. You may have heard of a little book that was made into a little movie. The book and the movie are called The Fault in Our Stars. John Green, who wrote that book, and his brother, have been video blogging on YouTube forever. And then they started doing this web series called Crash Course, in which they teach everything. They got a Google grant for a gazillion dollars to build a website for a very specific purpose. But instead of me trying to explain this to you, I am going to let them explain it to you. This is a video that you can see on the front of the page, but I am going to play you just the audio because that's what you need. Hi, I'm Hank Green. I make videos on the internet. And one thing I've noticed over the last seven years of doing this is that success is defined very strangely. It's defined entirely by numbers of views, not by, for instance, how much you helped people understand mitochondrial uncoupling. An advertising-driven internet can only ever care about how many people see something, not about how much those people care about it, or how much they benefit from it. And that's why my brother and I created Subbable, a voluntary subscription platform that allows audiences to directly support the projects they love in an ongoing way. Subscribe to your favorite shows and you'll give monthly to help the things you love thrive and grow. Along the way, you'll build up money in your perk bank that can be redeemed for all manner of wonderful things. Subscribe to Crash Course for $10 a month, for instance, and after six months, you'll have $60 in your perk bank, which can be redeemed for posters signed by me and my brother John. But you don't have to pay to subscribe through Subbable. You can subscribe to any channels on the site for free. But then again, it won't exist if people don't support it. We ascribe to the idealistic notions that audiences don't pay for things because they're forced to, but because they care about the stuff that they love and want it to continue to grow. So thank you for checking out Subbable and considering supporting some of the projects on this site. So months, months and months ago, I applied to see if I could become one of the content creators that's listed on the Subbable website. There are very few, and that's because they gatekeep it pretty stringently. They have a, a fairly strict set of guidelines that you need to meet. And so it, it took a long time. But I finally got the acceptance, and then the hard work started. And thank goodness for Vanessa, because she's talked me off the ceiling more than once. But Hank Green mentioned that as a Subbable subscriber, you could get a poster signed by him and his brother John. And that's true if you subscribe to their thing. For Craftlet, you can Subbable Craftlet. Pay nothing. You can just use it as the way to know when the next podcast comes out. You'll get a little email saying, hey, this week on Craftlet, and it'll have links and show note information and all that good stuff. Or you can pay something to support the show. And with it, I will be able to upgrade the equipment and software, pay Vanessa to help more, get more audiobooks with benefits done and in the shop, research faster, get rights to books that we would love to get rights to is one of my dream goals hire a producer or audio engineer so I can spend more time on the books and less time on the audio editing, which would then let me get more books out to you. You see how this goes. I really just want to do more books, but I am absolutely constrained by, by the number of hours in the day. So Vanessa and I tried to cook up some fun things that we could offer you as perks. 
Now, some of these things show number amounts like, hey, there's only four left. And that number is true, but unless otherwise specified, everything is something that we can order more of. So if you don't see something you want, please email scribe at craftlit.com and we'll get on it and we will order more so that we can send them out to you. But go take a look at what we're offering. One of the things that Hank didn't say is you can sign up on Subbable and say you want to follow Craftlit and pay nothing. You can pay a buck a month. You can pay a hundred bucks a month. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. It's really very flexible. You can change the amount anytime you want. But all of that money goes into a bank on the website and it just sits there waiting for you to spend it on something. So we have different levels of perks. It's kind of, in fact, the, the web page, when you look at it, if you've ever been on Kickstarter, it'll look a little bit like a Kickstarter campaign, except that it never ends because Craftlit will never end. But I do have to get groceries every once in a while. So, so this is a way that you can get something fun and extra, you know, more than just a weekly podcast, something, something a little different. And if there's something that you would really love us to have up as a perk, but you don't see there, Again, please write scribe at craftlit.com or call 1-206-350-1642. And the last thing I wanted to tell you is this. There will be a week-long hiatus on the subscriber feed while I finalize and prepare the last things I need to finalize and prepare before we start our next book. And our next book is something that I have been cooking up with John Scholes our Jonathan Harker from Dracula. John, whose podcast is in its second episode? In fact, by the time this goes out, he may have posted his third. I'm not sure. But one of the things that John had wanted to do, and I absolutely agreed, is do Sherlock Holmes. And we know it will take us the rest of our lives (laughs) to do all of Sherlock Holmes. But we are going to try and go in order. So we will start with A Study in Scarlet. But we won't be going straight through all of Sherlock Holmes all at once for the rest of our lives. Sherlock will be something that we can intersperse between big books. Kind of like a palate cleanser, the way we did Fitzgerald's A Diamond as Big as the Ritz. (laughs) After Bleak House, we had to do something short. So we will begin our palate cleansing with a study in Scarlet. Following Saturday, Saturday the 6th of September, I will skip so that I can be prepared to rock your world with a study in Scarlet on Saturday, September 13th. When we're a little closer to the end of North and South, I will announce what our next book will be on Craftlit as well. But I'm all, I'm working on it. It's all good stuff. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Have a great week. I will talk to you soon after school has started. And let me know what you think of the subable page. I hope you enjoy it. And take a look at some of the other content that's up there. There are shows and and web shows and things that I had never heard of before. So, there we are. Subbable. South by Southwest. Please don't forget. Vote, 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 vote. Send your friends. Vote early, vote often. Please, 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 please. That would be so marvelous. And don't forget the crochet book, which is up for our raffle for this month. August 2014. And have a great start to your September. If you're in the States, happy Labor Day. I hope you have a great Labor Day weekend full of fabulous barbecues and lovely evenings and then the ritual putting away of the white shoes. (laughs) 
And with that, I leave you. Have a great week. I'll talk to you very soon. Take care. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook. Or leave a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Craftlet.com, or our dedicated Android, iOS, and Windows 8 smartphone and tablet apps. You can use the same free Craftlet app to access premium streaming content on the go. Craftlet is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.